This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I have been incredibly eager to talk with Bryce Zabel, who I've been a fan of for many years. He's a television producer, a director, a writer, an author. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, the the work that he's doing now as the co-host of the Need to Know podcast is some of the finest work he's ever done. If you, the name Bryce Zabel, Zabel is not familiar to you, his work certainly is. He's been a winner of the Writers Guild Award for screenwriting. He's created and produced five primetime TV series. Uh, fan favorites like uh, Dark Skies on NBC, the TV adaptation of The Crow. He's worked on a lot of other TV shows that have been very, very critically acclaimed and uh, popularly enjoyed. Lois and Clark, The Adventures of Superman. He's a miniseries writer and uh, and a novelist. He really has worn many hats and Happens to have been the first writer since Rod Serling ever elected to serve as the chairman of the Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences. Also, uh, just an incredibly, incredibly bright guy and a talented guy. Bryce Zabel, it is great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me. It's it's great to be on with you, and uh, I, it's great to be up in the middle of the night. Happy to be there. Wonderful. Hey, uh, anybody that thinks that we pre-record interviews, you can attest that that's not the case. Uh, no, you know the the biggest part of this is is you got to get caffeinated to be up, and and then you got to be uh, then you got to go to bed afterwards. That's exactly. It, it is it is a challenge. Believe me, I get it. Now, I mentioned that you were the uh, the chairman and CEO of the right. the the Television Academy. You were the uh, chairman of the Television Academy. In the aftermath of September 11th, now take us through that. What is it like to deal with a, a an, an industry, television, which played such a pivotal role in helping people understand those attacks? And then, how do you deal with something as complicated as when to schedule awards shows oh. in the aftermath well, of September have- 11th? You know, Frank, you make, you make a great uh, point there because nobody had actually done anything like that before. When when 9-11 hit, I had just been elected uh, the chairman of the Television Academy. And, and for most people, it's a pretty good gig. You get uh, two years where you speak on the Emmys and you, you have a pretty good time. and You meet a lot of people. You go to parties. 
But this happened, uh, 9-11 happened five days before the Emmys were scheduled to be on. And, and we knew right away nobody wanted to go walk a red carpet after 9-11. So we immediately canceled them. And just to make the, the long part of it very short, we rescheduled for October 7th. And on the morning of October 7th, it turned out that we invaded Afghanistan. Mm. So we had to uh, cancel them a second time. And on the third time, uh, which was the charm, we did them on November uh, 7th of that year. And that was up against the last game of the World Series. Um, so it was quite a dramatic time. But I think the, the point you make is really good. Uh, people in Hollywood um, – you know, they're, they're like everyone else, like all other Americans, they run the, the gamut of the political spectrum. But I think it was important at that time for Hollywood to assure the, the country and the world that we got it. And uh, and trying to figure out the tone of how to actually have an award show in the uh, shadow of 9-11 was very difficult. It was a daily assessment of, of what was going on. Now, you are a very experienced writer and have done a lot of writing for television we are seeing um, a kind of an interesting situation now in terms of coming out of a tough time. 2020, obviously a very difficult year because of the pandemic. We saw last year, 2021, have a new record high number of scripted original television series after it dipped in 2020 because of the pandemic. What do you attribute that to, this record number of new original scripted shows? Is this a function of viewers looking for an escape? Is it a function of uh, it being easier to create television these days? Is it a function of 9,000 different streaming networks, or is it something else entirely? Well, we certainly are entering a period of peak television. There's no question about it. There I watch a lot of television because I feel like it's my job to be up to speed on it, but I can't watch enough to actually know really what's going on. There's just more than uh, than anyone can watch. <clears throat> and the reason it's happening, I think, is that uh, television is where the action is. It used to be that people wanted to be in, in features, but uh, now the, the real action, the great storytelling, the long arcs, the, uh, the interesting characters tend to be on television. And what tends to be on features is the big uh, blockbuster kind of things. So, um, the, I guess the answer to your question is uh, money chases uh, these things. And since that's where people are parking their, their eyes these days, money is going to flow into making more television. And it's very true that what the, the, uh, the pandemic has done and is continuing to do is make people find more things that they can watch at home and enjoy. And uh, there, I don't think that's ever going to be put back in the box. I think people have learned how to enjoy television more than ever in our history and uh, I, the way I would put it is, is this, Frank, uh, there's so much television going on right now that uh, you, you can always find something that you like. Whereas uh, in the in the old world that we grew up in, it was least objectionable programming. Sure. You know, it, when there's only th- three or four networks, you literally watch the program that sucks the least. <laughs> but in, in today's environment, you watch exactly what you want to watch and usually when you want to watch it. We've seen a similar explosion when it comes to options for podcasts, and you are a part of uh, of that revolution as well. You're the co-host of this Need to Know podcast. Tell me about this. What's this Need to Know podcast, and tell me about your transition from writing, which I know you're still doing, to the world of podcasting. What made you want to launch this Need to Know podcast? Well, it's very interesting. I do. I try to do a lot of everything. I do. I'm still an active screenwriter and a, and a producer, but. 
I've become kind of a subject matter expert in the world of UFOs over over the years just by studying and and trying to to write good material. And so the Need to Know podcast is literally uh, about the the UAP issue, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena. And and uh, you could probably you could probably imagine the world doesn't need another UFO podcast. I get it. Uh, but uh, my partner in this, uh, investigative reporter Ross Coulthard out of uh, Australia, he and I decided that while the world may not need another podcast about UFOs, we felt that it needed one about UAP that treated the subject seriously. Uh, I'm a former investigative reporter myself, and so Ross and I have decided to, that this issue is so important and it's happening so quickly and it's literally a story breaking before our very eyes that uh, what the world actually does need is more people who are talking about it in a serious and reasonable way and, and trying to communicate to people literally what's going on, because the truth is uh, we are getting very, very close to the time when the world is going to accept that we're not alone and it's going to change the world we live in. Uh, so one of the interesting things that you've been writing about has been a debate challenge to a very, very famous scientist, probably sure. the most popular uh, media scientist in America, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Now, this is Neil deGrasse Tyson on The View not long ago talking about UFOs and these videos of UAPs, excuse me, that's been uh, qualified as authentic by the Pentagon. In science, however, you, want, you look at, you, you rank possibilities by likelihood. Okay, these Navy videos, you have to ask if they are aliens visiting, why are they only visiting Navy pilots? How about the rest of Earth's surface? There are three billion smartphones on this planet. Each one is a high resolution color camera and video recorder. So basically, (laughs) aliens invasions have been crowdsourced to the population of the planet. If anybody's, any alien is landing anywhere, it's going to, look what else we have already streamed that used to be rare, but we knew was happening, all right? Like police, violence, and all of this. If aliens landed, you know we would have it. It would be (laughs) viral overnight. Now, what do you say to uh, what Neil Mm -hmm. deGrasse Tyson says there, and then tell me what's prompted your debate challenge Mm -hmm. to him? Okay, well, first of all, just listening to that uh, man talk about it there, it explains why, to me why I, I want to debate him. Uh, I don't know that it's a serious pro- proposal. I don't know that Neil deGrasse Tyson will deign to go talk to me about this subject for a couple of hours, but it would be nice. I think what he illustrated, though, in uh, his, his answer there is that everything for him when you bring up this topic is about sound bites and punchlines, and he sets up straw men that he knocks down. This whole bit about aliens and uh, why are they only revealing themselves to uh, uh, Navy pilots? Okay, let's take that apart. The government, the government itself, the Senate Intelligence Committee, demanded a report on UAP be delivered by June 25th of last year, and it was. And that report by the U.S. government uh, interviewing all these Navy pilots and people who have seen unexplainable things said that UAP are real. They're physically real. They do things that we can't do. They said the report said that we don't make them. And it said that it was unlikely that Russia or China made them either. So what the report is saying and what I'm saying is uh, he shouldn't jump to the alien card. I'm not jumping there. I'm saying we don't know who makes these things, but they are physically real. And for the first time in the 75 years since the government has been talking about 
first flying saucers, then a UFOs, and now UAP, uh, we have their confirmation that it's real. So I, I would look to get in a uh, look. I, I did this more to make a point to write an essay. I would dearly love to go talk to uh, Mr. Tyson about all this. And the truth is, I've met him several times as the chairman of the academy. I met him at a couple of Emmy shows. He was very kind to my children. He's a very bright man. He's gregarious. He's charming in his own way. But I think he's just plain wrong on this issue. And I think that we could shed a lot of light by getting together and talking it over. So that, so I just said, you know what, um, I'll challenge him to a debate. What's, what, what harm could come from that? Maybe he'll even say yes. You um, have done a podcast focusing on what we're seeing on the UAP issue out of Washington, D.C. This does seem like this is one of the few issues in which there's genuinely bipartisan cooperation. We've seen Democrats like Mark Warner, Christian Gillibrand, uh, partner with Republicans like Marco Rubio and others uh, in order to change the the UAP reporting process and in general to take UAPs more seriously. Why do you think all of a sudden we're seeing politicians take this seriously? Well, I think that uh, one of the answers is uh, you and I have seen those three Navy videos, but they were the low resolution uh, short versions. I think politicians who work on the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee have seen the, some of the good stuff. They've seen uh, some of those longer videos, the HD versions, and I think that they got their hair set on fire by it. And it, it struck them as a national security issue, because one of the things that has been uh, true about the whole UFO and UAP issue over these years is that they show uh, a, a, a real interest in what we do with our nuclear assets. Uh, let's face it, those those were naval uh, military carriers out there. Uh, nuclear weapons are part and parcel of all that. So um, I think I think uh, you're right that it turned into a bipartisan issue, and the reason for it is that it can be now looked at as a national security issue. And uh, boy, it is bipartisan. You think about it. Senator uh, uh, Gillibrand is a Democrat from your state, New York, and uh, of course, Marco Rubio, who is the co-sponsor of the amendment uh, that Gillibrand uh, sponsored, uh, is a, a Republican senator from Florida. And the other thing I'd say, Frank, by the way, is Let's just ask ourselves who those two people are. Well, they both ran for president, right? Gillibrand ran in 20 and Rubio ran in 16. Now, you, if you're an ambitious politician, and you run for president, you must do things that you think will not kill your chances at electoral victory, which means to me that Gillibrand and Rubio, smart politicians that they are, actually don't think talking out loud about the quiet part of UFOs is going to hurt their careers. So that alone tells you something. The media coverage of Harry Reid's passing did not include much of a mention of his work, both in the Senate and his work since leaving the Senate, to further the cause of UFO disclosure and, in general, UFO exploration. How come? Why do you think that was the one thing that they left out of all his tributes at his funeral, the media coverage of his funeral, all the obituaries? It's a little galling, and it still ticks me off. But let's just uh, back up for a second so that everyone knows why we're talking about Harry Reid. He was the Senate Majority Leader, very important guy. Uh, worked on the intelligence committees, uh, was in uh, Congress for some 30 years, major guy. And one of the things he did in the early 2000s is he made sure that $22 million got set aside to study UFOs because he saw it 
as a national security issue. And frankly, after he left the Senate, uh, he spent the last years of his life thinking about the UAP issue, talking openly about it. Uh, he felt that the, uh, the government had not been straightforward with the American people about the issue, and he felt that they should know more about it. So to catch up with your question, what is very irritating is that when Reid passed away, uh, I looked at all and read uh, all the mainstream media uh, coverage, uh, the, the obituaries, and with only, I think, a couple of exceptions, none of them mentioned the UAP issue that he was so passionate about. Oh, they talked about how he was a boxer when he was a kid and grew up in a poor family, and they talked about those kind of things. And they talked about you know his work in Washington, all of which was fine, and they all ignored it. So the question you raise is, why do they ignore it? And that is a tougher question, to be honest with you, because uh, it seems to me that the last people who are coming to the party uh, to try to really explain this uh, complex, mystifying issue uh, are the people, the reporters and the media. There are some that are starting to wake up to it, but the assignment desks at the uh, nation's um, uh, newspapers and, and television stations and networks don't seem to have quite caught up. And 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 frankly, I'd say in the next couple of years, you're going to see more and more of them catching up. But it was certainly a depressing thing to see that they they let this part of uh, of Reed go uh, silently. And I would just ask you this. Think about it. If you're a journalist and an important person dies and he has spent uh, the last years of his life thinking about a particular issue, why would that not be a part of his obituary? Mm. Absolutely. I just don't understand. No, no, neither did I. I mean, uh, I covered that a great deal when he passed away. But you're right. It was completely absent from the New York Times obituary, from the wall to wall coverage on uh, the cable news networks and elsewhere. All right. You are something of an expert and an aficionado when it comes to the Beatles. Something that our listeners uh-huh. may not know is that August of 1974, John Lennon had a UFO sighting. Tell us about it. You've written a three-part series about it. Give us the Reader's Digest version. Yeah, listen, um, I I just thought it was fascinating. John Lennon, if you think about it, uh, talked about uh, UFOs uh, multiple times in his Walls and Bridges album. He he wrote about it on the liner notes. Uh, he, uh, he wrote a song, out, out the Blue, that mentioned UFOs. And even in 1980, right before he died, he recorded a song, uh, Nobody Knows, uh, excuse me, um, um, Nobody Told Me, where the, the, the line is, there's UFOs over New York, and I ain't too surprised. So what was his sighting? Okay, it's August 23rd, it's 1974. It's uh, a couple of weeks after Nixon resigned. Uh, John has just moved back to New York. He's not living with uh, Yoko. He's living with May Pang, who is his assistant that he had spent a little over a year in Los Angeles with. They've got an, uh, a penthouse apartment on East 52nd Street. It's a hot night. They uh, turn off the AC and they throw the doors open. And Lennon is going over, um, you know, the, the album cover artwork, and he sees something outside. And what he sees is something about the size of a Learjet. He says later that you could throw a brick and hit it. Um, it was silent. It was hovering. And he described it as a, a giant cone flat on the bottom, uh, alternating white lights going around the bottom and a giant non-alternating uh, red light at the top. He calls May Pang out. She sees it. And uh, they were astonished by it. And according to both John and May, they spent uh, at least 10 minutes looking at it before it sort of 
silently floated down and up the uh, the East River past the United Nations uh, building and finally disappeared. Wow. I mean, uh, that is fascinating. Absolutely well, fascinating. You know, uh, Frank, one of the things that fascinates me is that Lennon uh, – did have he called uh, his friend uh, photographer Bob Gruen and and they uh, had Bob called the police uh, uh, department and they said oh about three people had called in they called Daily News they said maybe five to seven people had called in and the thing is I I guess those the the newspaper uh, decided not to write about those people because I've never been able to track down any of those witnesses so I would simply say today. Boy, if there's anybody listening whose grandmother or grandfather saw that uh, or they're still alive, I'd like to talk to a witness who also saw what John Lennon saw, because that would be very helpful. Uh, Absolutely. Hey, I have uh, pages of notes that I want to go over with you, but I am out of time. Uh, Bryce, any chance we can get you to come back one day next week to uh, continue the conversation? You know what? I would love to do it. I, I think you have a great show, and I particularly like the fact that you you know this topic, and I, it would be a pleasure to talk to you. Well, about. Uh, thank you. We'll look forward to uh, getting you uh, back on. We've been talking with Bryce Zabel.